This is a CBC Podcast. It's not about protecting kids. This is about giving power to parents, you know, and as parents, we have responsibilities. As children, they have rights. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman, and this is Edmonton, a local podcast from CBC News. Alberta has announced new plans for policies around gender identity and gender-affirming care for youth, joining other provinces like Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. But we went much further. After much discussion, the government caucus and I have therefore decided to implement the following policies and guidelines as it relates to transgender minors and athletes, including additional supports to assist transgender adults to secure the health care they need and the counselling support for youth identifying as transgender to ensure they can successfully work their way through their complex feelings and emotions as they grow to adulthood. First, on the issue of gender reassignment treatments for minors. For minors age 17 and under, top and bottom gender reassignment surgeries will not be permitted. For children age 15 and under, puberty blockers and hormone therapies for the purpose of gender reassignment or affirmation will also not be permitted. It was posted in a seven minute long video to X, complete with a soft acoustic soundtrack and plenty of stock footage of happy families and children. But the language and proposed legislation from Smith was a stark contrast to that tone. It's a wide-ranging plan, but the big three headlines include surgery, school, and sports, limiting access for gender-affirming care for trans youth, as well as including disclosure and consent policies for those who might want to change their pronouns. There's a lot in these proposed policies, and there are a lot of voices speaking up. I I think the new law is great. Um, I don't think teenagers are smart enough to make a decision on their own before they turn an adult. I don't want to sound like an alarmist. I don't want to sound super dramatic, but um, taking that away, it's really a death sentence for some of these kids. When a teacher in a classroom changes a child's pronouns, she is forcing the other children in the classroom to change how they refer to the child. When you do that, you are changing the way the classroom interacts with the child. I think it's reckless and irresponsible. This is anti-science, it's anti-evidence, and it's going to force trans students back into the closet. Since the policies were announced last week, the measures have received blowback and threat of legal action. And in a lot of cases, the argument for these policies seems to boil down to parental rights, an argument that is not new. And it's the same language we saw in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick and south of the border as well. The parental rights movement is definitely a distinctive movement um, that that has a, a political valence to it. Um, it is a conservative movement here in the United States that has um, come to represent parents who are concerned about uh, what's being taught in schools and are seeking, in, in many instances, to limit what can be taught about sexuality and gender and race and history. That's reporter Emma Brown of The Washington Post on an episode of CBC's Front Burner podcast last year. The phrase parental rights has a long history in Canada, back to even the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Usually these arguments come up around language and religion in schools, where parents have expectations of what and how their kids are educated. And when that expectation seems to differ from reality, things get loud. Like when we saw the One Million March for Children and counter-protesters come through Edmonton last fall, based on an inclusive education program called SOGI123. And again this past weekend, when parents and allies took to the streets to support trans youth. (laughs) 
I'm here for so many reasons. I do have a trans son, so of course this hits close to home. Um, but there's so many aspects to Danielle Smith's announcement that are terrifying, and it's a slippery slope. Well, I'm here to support trans kids. Uh, we're seeing a, a hate agenda coming forward from the, the UCP's policies and their attempt to weaponize uh, legislation against trans kids. I think it says we're a very right-wing, ideologically driven uh, community, uh, but in Edmonton that's not, a, not the case. So many of my friends are in the queer community. It's a direct attack on the rights of the youth. We organize this because we want the kids in our community, the, the youth in our community, to see the love because this is going to be an uphill battle for them. And they, a lot of them feel very alone because they're not out or because they're not safe and they can't talk about it. So we are here to show our kids and show the kids in our, our province that we love them and we're going to fight for their rights. Alex Marshall works with a lot of parents across northern Alberta. She's a volunteer with the Firefly Institute for Sexual and Gender Diversity at the U of A. Hello. Hey, is this Alex? Yes, speaking. Hey, it's Claire. How's it going? Good. How are you? For years, Alex has been traveling to schools and communities in rural Alberta to talk with kids, teachers, and parents about how to create inclusive environments. Alex grew up in rural Alberta, and she herself is trans. I called her up last week after the announcement came through and asked about how she speaks to parents who are on the side of these kinds of policies, just because they want to know what's going on in their kid's life. Something I have done many sessions for parents and community that have those same concerns, and I always tell them the same thing. I have never once worked with a queer youth who has kept this information secret when their parents have said something along the lines of, no matter what, I love you. I want you to know that I, I love you and I care about you. And I want you to feel safe talking to me about, you know, as you grow and come to know and understand yourself, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of your life in that way. Those kind of conversations immediately <laughs> stop any of these secrets, as they're sometimes, I think, almost pejoratively called. They're just the facet of kids knowing based on what they've heard in their day to day life, like what is safe for them to talk about at home. But Again, the vast majority of youth that we support do not keep this away from their parents. It's just not usually how it goes. So I always tell parents, if you if you really want to know what's going on with your, in life with your kids, ask them, tell them that you want them to feel safe talking about this with you. Kids hear things from their parents um, that maybe sometimes could be misinterpreted. Maybe they think that their parents wouldn't be accepting of them when they would. But the best way to solve that is to be explicit and say, I love you and I care about you and I want to support you in any way that you need. Every single kid that I've ever met who talks about not being able to talk with their parents are absolutely devastated by that fact. They are broken up about it. They feel so bad. And it's just, it's a constant source of trauma for them that they can't talk with their parents about it because they've heard things that they've said and done. And the thing is, yeah, sometimes those parents might not realize some of the things that they've been done, just like offhanded comments that they didn't think were relevant or anything like that. But the way to deal with that problem isn't legislation, <laughs> conversation. It's parents, again, saying to their kids, hey, I love you and I care about you. I want you to feel safe talking with me about anything. Uh 
The loudest voices that we've heard so far are parents. Parent councils and rights groups applauding the school interventions. Parents of 2S LGBTQ plus youth trying to access care and fearing more barriers to their child's well-being. And parents just trying to do the right thing by their kids in the middle of this massive political argument. Yes, there are people on the extreme ends of the spectrum. But as with so many issues, there are a lot more in the middle with a lot more shades of gray. I believe it was in the first week of high school, I received a text that said, I am now identifying as she, they, a new name. And that was kind of how it started with this this text in the middle of the day. To which I replied, well, we'll talk about it when you get home. (laughs) That's a mom in Calgary who supports these new policies. CBC isn't revealing her identity to protect her teenager, with whom she no longer has a close relationship. I wasn't unsupportive um, at that point. Of course, much like most parents, I think, that, that face this sort of out of the blue, I didn't have a lot of knowledge on what this actually meant. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite liberal as a, as a parent. And at this point for me, I'm like, let's just get information. Like, I'm open to information. Let me understand more. In the meantime, I start doing my own research in terms of you know, the latest scientific data and, you know, the things that are now going on in, in, in this situation. And I started to educate myself as best I could. Uh, in the meantime, we do get this referral. Um, and so we, we arrive at this appointment. And I admittedly, uh, you know, I still wasn't hugely in the know about the, all the science behind this at that point. I just made it clear to the doctor and to my kid that uh, I was not comfortable with this, that I didn't think it was appropriate, that a, that a general practitioner, which is who this was, it was a GP, was not an endocrinologist, was not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, was prepared to write a prescription for irreversible hormones in a five-minute appointment. That didn't. That was not a. That did not seem like an ethical standard of care to me. Uh, it was almost a year later, um, after that initial appointment, that I discovered that my child had gone back to that GP, and filled the cross-sex hormone um, prescription. Her child was 16 years old when they began taking hormone therapy without parental consent. With this new policy, that treatment would have required her sign-off. I basically just, I just said to my child, the, the consequences of your choices, I will just go on record to say with you, I, I want you to be happy and healthy and safe. And I will not, I will not consent to this. My child was not happy about that. So when I found the hormones, I of course tried to present uh, the, the, the science, the, the, you know, I, I, pro- I tried to present all of the concerns that I had, both emotionally, scientifically, ethically, for how this happened. Um, that was not well received because I had filed a complaint with CPSA and the doctor was aware of that. The doctor cho- told my child, then 16, that's when my child decides that it is no longer safe to live with me. Um, and my child ran away. And, and I have been in touch with my child and we have gone to therapy together. So there is contact there. It's been brutal. Because I, I supported my child in every way that I, I knew how. 
because what happens is it divides families and, and the parents are sitting there trying to do the right thing by their child. Politics aside, I, 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 think, this is a, I think this is a healthier, safer way for families to move forward um, because mine is one of thousands of families who've, whose children have, have been, um, you know, essentially divided from their parents. So this, I believe this will save lives. I really, really do and save families because this is tearing us apart. They're dividing us on purpose and it's almost always the mom that gets the vitriol. I cannot, you know, various parents don't affirm at all with the pronouns, they refuse that. There's all kinds of strategies parents are trying. Uh, I, can, I can honestly lay my head down at night and know that I did everything in my power for my kid to know that, that they were loved, that they were supported, I've really come to the, the conclusion um, that I did everything I could to protect my child from, from irreparable harm, and, uh, and I'm a good mom. In a statement from the government to CBC, 2,700 claims were submitted for non-surgical interventions by minors in 2022-23. That includes things like hormones and puberty blockers. According to AHS, it's unknown how many of these thousands of claims are for gender dysphoria versus other medical conditions like cancer treatment, endocrine or growth disorders, obesity, or even fatigue. But they estimate that treatments for reasons other than gender dysphoria represent the majority of these claims. To help make sense of this, I reached out to a parent who has been through this process with their child. Navigating transition, medical care, and mental health. Hi, Cindy. Yes. Hey, I'm Claire. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Cute house. Sydney Cunningham's son is 24 years old. He actually received gender-affirming top surgery the day that Smith announced Alberta's new gender policies. I met up with her at her home on the north side to talk about the last six years and what it's meant for her family and her relationship with her son. There's a misunderstanding or a misconception that these things happen quickly, right? You know, a child decides that they want surgery and they can just go get it. And that is not at all the case. This has been years in the making. There are wait lists. There are many things that have to happen before surgery day ever arrives. So it was definitely, you know... Um, it's emotional. It's emotional as a parent anytime, like when your child goes for any kind of surgery. Um, but knowing that this is so important to them and what this will do for their esteem and their sense of belonging and their sense of worth, like you feel that for them. Tell me about your kid. So my kid is, uh, my kid is an adult now. <laughs> he just turned 24 and um, he came out as trans when he was 18. Earlier, like a, a couple of years before, um, he came out as gay and that was like, okay, past the salt, right? Like it was, it was not, it was not a big deal at all. We've always, you know, we've, We've tried to be very supportive. We've tried to have very open and honest dialogue with our kids, and we still do. Um, we've always tried to foster an environment where conversation is welcome, people are respected, and it's just it's a safe space, right? 
doesn't always mean that everybody in the conversation is going to agree, but we can we can talk through things and we can do that in a way that honors each individual. When he did come out as trans to you at 18, do you remember how that conversation went, how you handled that and, and reacted as a parent? Because it is big news, right? It is, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was definitely a different conversation. And part of it was, I just, I wanted to make sure that he had access to what he was going to need, right? And as an introvert, so much of what he had learned and and whatnot had been just things he had read. And so his dad and I talked a lot about like, we want to make sure that he can get connected to people who can support him on this journey, right? Because we can support as parents, but we can't truly say, I know how you feel, right? And it's one thing to to read about somebody's experience, and then it's another thing to actually go through that yourself. So we started connecting with people so that we could find, you know, community for him. As a parent, it like it's a journey. You your child is going through a journey, and your journey as a parent might be the same speed, it might be slower. And for me it was a little slower, right? Like I don't want to sit here and say, "Oh, you know, it was just it was smooth and nothing ever came up." Like there was definitely moments as a parent where you're like, "Okay, like I'm I'm going on my own journey, right? And you think about even like a name change, for example, when this baby is born, you give them this name and you love this name. And then all of a sudden it becomes something that is painful to your child, you know, and it becomes a dead name. And there's processing with that, right? Like you, you have to kind of, you have to put yourself aside, right? Because that was about me. That name was something that we chose, right? And um the pain that we were feeling is not something that he needed to take on right um so that's kind of you know an example of that that separate journey right and where friends can instantly you know that same day just like yeah we're just gonna start calling you that name as a parent there's it took longer you know um it took a little longer with pronouns and it didn't just all happen the day that he told us but the more you go through this and the more you start to to use the new name for lack of a better term um and when you start using your child's pronouns that they want that they own and you see how that makes them feel you know you realize okay this isn't about me, you know, and there is a bit of a process to set yourself aside and, and step into what affirms your child. What do you feel are your rights as a parent? Because this whole conversation kind of comes back to the idea of parental rights. So what are yours? I have responsibilities to my child. Um, my child is, is an individual. They are their own person. It's not about protecting kids. This is about giving power to parents, you know. And as parents, we have responsibilities. As children, they have rights. We, we say this is parental rights, but it really feels like it is parental power. You know, if this was truly about protecting your kids, that starts at what's going on at home. 
that's where you build that relationship so that you your child will talk to you and if that's not happening no amount of and I use air quotes rights are going to change that your son actually wrote out a piece they're recovering from surgery (laughs) he's pretty tired but he did write out a statement and I was wondering if you could read it for me To say that I am disappointed with Danielle Smith's decision to restrict gender-affirming care in Alberta would be an extreme understatement. No child should be denied health care of any kind, and the statements made by Smith demonstrate not only a misunderstanding of the shape of gender-affirming care for transgender youth, but also raises many issues that could spill over into health care for any child. To me, receiving gender-affirming care didn't just improve my quality of life, it saved it. Many who medically transition do so because it is the only way for us to feel at home in our bodies. Smith's statement that she doesn't want children to make irreversible decisions, alongside her push to ban puberty blockers for those under 15 of age, ignores the fact that undergoing puberty is also irreversible. While I am thrilled that I have been able to feel at home in my own body through medically transitioning as a young adult, There are elements of my body that I cannot change after having gone through a more female type of puberty during teenhood. Hormone blockers are far more medically reversible than undergoing the wrong puberty just because said puberty aligns with the sex you were assigned at birth. Transgender people in general already have to jump through hoops just to access life-saving health care, and these new legislations are designed only to further strip transgender people and children in general of their autonomy. How do you feel reading your son's words? Oh, I just wholeheartedly agree, right? Like, it's so much more all-encompassing than just, you know, it's like, well, we're going to limit this one thing to limit this, you know, but it's it's not that. It just, it affects so many more people. Um, and again, it's, you know, he talked about the schools and bullying, and it's not just about the bullying that happens at home. But that happens at school, right? Like, if you are not ready to come out, you should not be forced to come out. But also, you need safe spaces. And if a teacher can be that safe space for you, then let them be that safe space. This is Edmonton is a local podcast from CBC. Our senior producer is Leslie Goldstone, and a huge thank you to all of our colleagues in the newsroom and across CBC that have been collecting reporting, audio, and voices on this story for the last week. I'm Claire Bonnyman, and This is Edmonton is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering place of the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. Email us a question, a comment, or a story idea at thisisgag at cbc.ca, and you can leave us a rating or a review wherever you download the show. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and on SiriusXM. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.